Tony. He's George. We've got a lot to talk about today. We've got Kirk Herbstreet weighs in on the quarterback competition. I feel like he might know something about quarterbacks. I don't know. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about SEC scheduling, which is always one of my favorite topics, very near and dear to my heart. Uh, ask us anything, of course. And then we're going to look at the defense, uh, some you know comments from Nick Saban about NIL, and then maybe a bit of a boo-boo that uh, Ohio State safety made. So we're going to get into all of that. Let's start with Kirk Herbstreit talking about the quarterbacks. I, so his thing was, right, so we're we're kind of getting into the offseason, and I think everybody's kind of in limbo because – you know, at Ohio State, you want to know who that guy is going to be. Who's going to be the dude at number one? Who's going to be the guy who's going to, like, you know, direct the team and lead the team and all that kind of stuff? Who's going to be on the Heisman watch list just because they're the Ohio State quarterback? And this is an interview that Kirk Herbstreit gave uh, at On3. And uh, he basically says that, you know, he doesn't think Ryan Day right now knows who that guy is, even though Kyle McCord obviously was the dude who was in the spring game. A lot of that was by dent of Devin Brown being injured. Um, And so the question is, you know, and actually, you know what, let's go ahead and read this full quote here. I don't think they even know. I really don't. I think Day will go into summer camp. He'll have those scrimmages. And I wouldn't be shocked if they use the first two or three games to kind of let those guys play it out. Here's the thing. Last year, uh, Jim Harbaugh kind of went into the season with Michigan in a similar situation. And I was pretty vehement that this was the dumbest possible idea that you can make is if you have two quarterbacks, you have no quarterbacks. And a lot of this was based on my trauma from the year of our Lord 2015 when Urban Meyer couldn't make a decision about who he wanted to be the starting quarterback. It worked out for Michigan. Michigan went to the college football playoffs, beat Ohio State, had a pretty damn successful season. My question to you is, George, do you think that Ryan Day needs to have a definitive starting quarterback going into fall camp or going into that first game, or can they let it play out uh, leading up to that Notre Dame game in late September? No, platooning quarterbacks is stupid. No, it's great. Um, it's great. Let's, let's say it very patently. In fact, you're I'm I'm ashamed, Johnny. You're you're older. You're the senior of the two of us, and you're not taking this far back enough into the Ohio State football archives for why platooning quarterbacks is stupid. Because I have childhood trauma of watching Troy Smith and Justin Zwick get platooned <laughs> against Texas in the what was it the 2005 season oh, six? I don't know. Why did but do that? They lost a very they lost a very important home football game because they were doing that Q two quarterbacks routine. They did. And then I had to watch do them remember, do it with Cardale. Oh my God. Do you remember why they did that? I was actually in attendance at that game. I was about 20 feet behind Ryan Hamby in the end zone when he dropped the touchdown pass. Do you remember why they did that? Because Troy Smith was returning from suspension. That's exactly right. And so, they, I wouldn't invoke the memory if I didn't know the context, right. Johnny. But my point Come is, on. is that there was a reason for it. They, they had, they were like, all right, well, we got to do something here because Troy Smith took five hundred dollars from a booster. <laughs> Clearly, the greatest crime that someone can commit. What a time! That's right, the worst crime what that someone time. can commit. And we've got to put our foot down and show them that that's not what college football is about. So yeah, that they did that. I was thinking you were going to go back to, uh, to uh, you know, all the way in the 90s, Joe Germain and Stanley Jackson. I thought you were going way back. Um, 
No, that's that's like two. That's by Baby or I, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> Baby George. Um, yeah, Baby I, George. you know the thing is, and and yeah, I generally don't think that platooning is a good idea. I think it's a pretty stupid idea, frankly. I, I think it's not no. good for the cohesiveness of a team. I don't think that it's the smartest thing that you can do when it comes to like uh, getting guys ready for the season. I mean, if you're telling dudes that they're going to have to split reps with the first team in August especially when you're talking about two guys who have not been the starter. That to me is not a recipe for success. I think you make that decision and say, look, you're the dude. And if that doesn't work out, okay, let's say it's Kyle McCord and it doesn't work out and he's not great in the first couple games. That's fine. That's fine. Then you, then you can say you can go to Devin Brown, but you don't, you don't split the reps in the most important part of the off season uh, between guys who are, who are going to need every single rep possible to make sure that they're prepared. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, Herb Street, this is a guy he's he's seen a lot. He's obviously been a quarterback at Ohio State. I don't think that he, um, you know, I don't think he's saying this because he thinks it's a terrible idea or something like that. I, I think he probably um, has a lot of faith in Ryan Day. And he says, you know, you got two guys that are more than capable. Ohio State's been pretty spoiled at that spot with their receivers since Ryan Day's taken over. They're going to find a way to put a lot of points on the board, regardless of which guy wins it. I would agree with that, right? You've got, you still got Marvin Harrison Jr. Whoever's going to be, um, you know, passing the ball is going to be having a pretty great target amongst others. So I'm not worried about it. I just think it's not the smartest move. Um, do you think that that could cost Ohio State? Here's here's my read. Okay, here's my read. I think that Sunshine Scooter is doing a bit because he sees that his son, you know, he's there's he's a football dad. It's easy for us to forget about this, but he he currently, you know, for all the hating we've done of him for having a son on Clemson for a little bit, Mr. Herb Street currently has a son on the Ohio State team of Mr. Zach Herb Street, mm-hmm. who I believe plays tight end for the Buckeyes. My take is that Mr. Herb Street recognizes that there, there's there's been some controversy about uh, another. There's another quarterback football dad on the team, if you will. His name is uh, Mr. Derek McCord, mm-hmm. and I believe that this is simply a case of one football dad antagonizing another football <laughs> dad, and 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 Kirk Herb Street, a, a, a somewhat more accomplished quarterback of the of the late eighties, early nineties era of football. If I'm correct so in my, in my crime is what you're saying. We're going way back okay. in time today on the dub cast. But my point <laughs> is I think Herb street recognizes that he, with Derek being like, Oh, my son's getting ready to take over the show. Kirk is like, all right, buddy, let's remember. It's a bit of an open competition at the moment. And we want Mr. Day to make the right decision just in the interest of ruffling Derek McCord's feathers. <laughs> but you know what? And the truth of the matter is, first of all, that's hilarious. The secondly, though, I still do believe that it's an open quarterback competition. I don't think this is over. I don't think that, uh, you know, Kyle McCord has this thing wrapped up. And I don't think Devin Brown, I mean, they talked about, you know, how he's, you know, back from his hand. He's doing good. He can throw. He's all right. And I honestly feel like them making a point of saying that Brown was healthy is, um, you know, it's them basically saying that this is still a competition, right? Like this is still something that's going to have to be decided. And, you know, again, I don't want this to drag out into the season. I think that is a terrible idea. 
particularly, like I said, particularly when you have two guys who have not been starters. I mean, even with Michigan last year, at least you have, you know, the situation where both players had significant playing time going into this season. They could probably get up to speed if they needed to in short order. This is not the case right now with Kyle McCord and Debron. You, you want them to get those reps in camp to develop a rapport with the receivers and not just assume that like, oh, well, you know, we'll put Marvin Harrison in the slot. We'll put him, you know, all the way. He's going to go deep every play. Like you've got to have some kind of consistency there, I think. Let's say that we get to the start of fall camp, which I believe is, you know, beginning of August. When is the latest you would feel comfortable with Ryan Day announcing a uh, definitive starter? That's a good question. Comfortable? Latest would probably be the week before the game, right? Mm-hmm. And not and not end of the season. And, and I hate like, oh, we'll announce the day of. That's stupid. And by the way, when there's a difference here. If – Ryan Day says we'll announce like the day of like people will know right if if you see camp or if you see practices leading up to the first game or whatever people are going to generally know who the starter is right but if it literally is a situation where they're still splitting reps that last week before the first game that's a problem so for me even if he says like oh we'll do it at game time people generally know by that point I'm cool with it that'll be fine if it goes in the season I think that's that's a that's just bad news. That's not what we want um, to see as fans. I think that would be a, a big mistake. What do you think? Worst case scenario, and we do end up getting a bit of platooning. Mm-hmm. What I will note is I think beyond at Notre Dame, the schedule is pretty soft compared oh, to sure, what yeah. we've seen in, I don't want to say last year, but perhaps some other years of late. Um, so with that in mind, I think as long as we get a clear cut number one guy before they have to go to South Bend, as long as we don't go into South Bend thinking, oh, we're trying to spin this as a, they don't know what guy we're going to go with that dang going to work. But I would ideally like to see someone definitively named a week before the season as you if we end up getting it dragged out over the two games where it's a wait-and-see approach, and this is a strictly worst-case scenario, I'm not saying I think that's what's going to happen. I think part of the reason that Day has had success here is because he's had a definitive, clear-cut guy at the beginning of every year. We have to remember this is a guy that I believe at one point was juggling Dwayne Haskins and Joe Burrow. Mm -hmm. And despite how that decision has played out, it's hard to say that he made the wrong decision because both of them played out on successful paths. Well, yeah, so, and Haskins. Given that guy's juggled those two, I think he can juggle McCord and whoever else may be in play here. And that's, that's a good point. And, you know, so. I, I think that's – it's funny because I will, you know, troll or troll through. I don't, I don't actually troll. I don't like to post on Reddit. But uh, I will look at Reddit threads where people will talk about <laughs> – they'll talk about – Joe Burrow. Allegedly. Yeah, yeah. Well, what I'm saying is is that guys on in the college football <laughs> forum, whatever, they'll talk about like, oh, Joe Burrow, you know, I can't believe Ohio State passed this dude up. And it's like, well, first of all, Burrow wasn't that great in his first season at LSU. Secondly, uh, Dwayne Haskins threw for like 5,000 yards and 50 touchdowns. Like, I don't know. Like, he put that entire offense on his back that year because they didn't have a functional running game. So, the, the right decision was made. 
the right decision was made by Ryan Day in that such in that in that uh, situation. Yeah, and, so and Burrow still soft claims Ohio State too. <laughs> so it's like we we yeah. we came out ahead in all angles on that situation. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. So it'll be interesting to see how that evolves. I, I do really hope that Kirk is wrong um, and that they have this thing settled earlier or sooner rather than later. But you know, it could it could go into the season. And, and like you said, I mean, if if that is the case, I guess that's not necessarily a reason to panic, but also, a lot of that will depend on the performance of the quarterbacks. Because here's the other thing. If you decide to platoon in the first couple of weeks and they both look like ass, that's a problem. <laughs> it's not. It, it's one thing if both of these guys come out and they throw for 500 yards and you're like, oh, God, you know, they're the embarrassment of riches. What do you do? But if they both come out and they pass, you know, they complete half their passes for a couple hundred yards and maybe a, you know interception or two, then that things become a little bit different. Um, it's Marvin Harrison wildcat time. That's, that's right. That's right. We were talking about uh, Troy Smith. That's Alamo Bowl there, baby. And when they put Ted Ginn back there, that was sick. <laughs> uh, the shot Ginn formation. That was pretty fun. So I enjoyed that. It worked. Yeah, it did work. They scored a touchdown on that play. It was great. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's get into this here. We're talking about schedules and Power 5 opponents, things like that. The SEC is pretty adamant. They, they have insisted for a while now that they will not go to nine games in conference. They are sticking with eight. Stuart Mandel tweeted out that he was he was curious if maybe this um, impacts how ESPN wants to pay the SEC. In other words, um, you know, it feels like they don't want to offer him any more money, and maybe this is part of it. Like, do you really want to pay a conference more money if they're going to schedule three, like, you know, Citadels a year? Um, uh, Brett McMurphy's out here talking about how uh, in 2023, uh, this is teams playing at least 10 Power 5 opponents in 2023. Big 10, 13 out of 14 teams. One team who's not, I think, is Michigan. Good job, morons. Uh, Big 12, 11 out of 14. Pac-12, 10 out of 12. ACC, 10 out of 15. SEC, 2 out of 14 teams <laughs> will play at least 10 Oof. Power 5 opponents. Um, but here's the thing. It's working for them because uh, no team, and this is from Peter Burns at ESPN, no team playing a nine-game conference schedule has ever won a college football national championship. So those cupcakes, right, it's working for the SEC. It is It is. A path to success. It may make them seem, you know, like lazy, or it may make them seem like they're kind of cowards, you know, not wanting to play that full, you know, conference schedule. But it's working for them. So I don't know. Can can we hate too much on success? Is my question. And should the Big Ten maybe follow suit? Are you really asking? Can we hate too much on the SEC? <laughs> Can we hate too much on Paul Feinbaum? No. Can we hate too much on Nick Saban and uh, Lane Kiffin and Hugh Freeze? Lane Kiffin's yeah, I, cool I guess now. He's I'm cool with really Lane Kiffin. Anymore. I like Lane Kiffin now. He's he's, oh, he's great. Come on, Hugh man. Freeze is a horrible human being. Forget that. But I'm I'm down with Joe uh, Joey Freshwater. He's 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 fine by me at this point. But how do you? I mean, I how do you feel I, about? I watched those. I watched those Brian Kelly influencer dancers for the recruits, and I just all the evil going on in that conference is just, it's horrible. This this awful era that we live in, Johnny. I can't deal with it. And on top of it, they won't they won't play nine conference games. 
That's the most that, evil thing of it all. Does that it's, one it's game? I don't really care. Do you think that honest. one game makes a huge difference? <laughs> I mean, I know they're talking about like, oh, okay, well, no team that's you know that's played nine conference games has ever won. If you make them do it, they'll just gonna like they're gonna declare an annual rivalry with like Vanderbilt. They'll find like the worst one at the bottom right. of the barrel and be like, okay, we choose we choose you. Right. That's all that's gonna happen. And then there will be no incentive for that team to get better because the money will come in every time that they have an annual game with the people at the top. And that's going to get to something I think we're going to talk about later relative to Saban declaring that the disparity in college football is only going to grow. I think that's probably what it's going to be. Even as you see these teams that – will try to make moves for greater disparity, you're only going to see the conferences that want to see their breadwinners do well make moves to ensure that their teams get in the positions to be successful. It's what we saw Kevin Warren do for Ohio State during COVID. And I, and that's the thing, like it is all about jockeying for position at this point. And I think First of all, there's no incentive for the SEC to change, and they're not going to change because why would they? Um, but I think what's going to happen is, is that now that the college football playoff has been expanded, a lot of this will kind of go away a little bit, at least in terms of narrative, because it's not, you know, if you've got a team that's going to consistently make it, Ohio State can lose, you know, a couple games each season. They're going to get into the college football playoff because they will look good. Even if they lose to Michigan, they can still, they're going to have a very good. I don't know about a couple. They get away with one. I think they get away with a couple. couple. How many, I mean, this is, you think, you think a couple's not going to. No. How many teams are eligible? So if we look at the new and improved college football playoff. I think you have to be an SEC team if you want to lose multiple games. Not even that, I, that, honestly, and I'm gonna. And if I'm being totally honest, I think it's really more about when you lose than who you lose to. If you lose in November, it's still fresh in the committee's head. But if you like, when Alabama got in a few years ago over Ohio State, they lost to Ole Miss, but it happened at like late September, so nobody gave a uh, nobody cared. So, but if you lose in late stages. You'll the committee remembers, and that's really what's more important than conferences or number of games you're playing. So Ohio that's State. So if Ohio State hypothetically lost to Michigan and didn't play in the Big Ten championship, there's no way they're getting into the college football playoff. For many years, it was the that's kind of the way that it was. Was the stakes of this like why this rivalry got so huge? Mm-hmm was if you lost, your whole season basically went up in smoke. But that wasn't the case Because it's the most important game at the end of the year. It was basically the unofficial Big Ten championship. Right. So with the way that things are structured now, it's still kind of the way that it is. I'm okay with that because most of the time it's going to be heartbreak for them. We've just been on the bad end of it the last two years. Well, and I don't I don't personally mind it that much either. But, I mean, last year Ohio State lost to Michigan, still made the college football playoff, was, you know, literally one drive away from basically going to the national championship and probably winning. I, I can't deny that there's a certain appeal to the idea that Ohio State winning a national championship despite losing to Michigan would probably the, be the funniest possible way to do that and also infuriate Michigan fans more than anything. 
I can see it happening, but not if they drop a game like to Oregon and non-conference beforehand or something earlier in the year. I don't see them getting into the playoff. I wanted to see them rematch Michigan as bad as anyone sure, in the yeah. playoff last year, but it. Uh, I think they can definitely lose to Michigan and still get in going forward. I think we will probably see that in like – if this format holds up, I think many, many years down the road, we'll probably see that at least once or twice more times. But um, I don't think we can see them lose and lose to Michigan and then get in with two losses. I think unless you're an SEC team where they've got that kind of forgiveness baked into the cake with that conference, it's just not going to happen. So, And it's unfortunate, but here's, it is what it is. Here's the reason why I disagree with that a little bit. Uh, so we're going to a 12-team playoff, right? The twelfth team that is that's important to consider. That's true. Well, and the twelfth team in the playoff or the twelfth team in the AP poll last year in the final poll was USC. They had three losses, right? Florida State had three losses. They were eleven. Utah had four. Like my point is, is that if any team in the Big Ten, I mean now Michigan probably because they've they've you know really proven that they are back and that they're a capable team. But if there's any team in the Big Ten that's going to get the benefit of the doubt with two losses and considering like how many other teams are going to have two losses in the top 12, at least I got to feel like Ohio state's always going to be at the top there. Now I do agree that it does kind of depend on when those happen. Like if Ohio state drops one or drops two in November, then I think that's a problem for them. I don't, I don't think they would be able to overcome another like two loss team that like maybe lost a couple in September or, or one in September, one in October. And they've looked awesome in the past six weeks. That would be hard for Ohio state to overcome. But if you're in a situation where, like, you know, they drop one in September, maybe they lose to Michigan and Michigan's like a top two or three team, that Ohio State team is getting in the playoff, period. Like, they, if they look good enough, like, in terms – if they've won all their other games and they look pretty decent, they're going to be one of the top 12 teams. Now, they could be 10 or 11 or 12, but I can't see the committee saying, like, yeah, let's leave out the biggest fan base in college football, <laughs> right? At, on an eleven and two team, I think you're right about that. Yeah, because yeah. it's no, you you make a good because at that point it's like between them and like Tulsa. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they're not going to be like Ash. No, Tulsa really kind of deserves it this year. Like they're not going to do that. So we'll see what happens. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I was advocating for like an eighteen playoff. I thought that was a sweet spot. I was kind of shocked when they went to twelve, frankly. Uh, but it, I think it will be good for the sport overall. I, I'm I'm happy about that. I think that will be more teams, more money, more teams, more money, and I also think it's going to be a more interesting uh, bowl season um, because now we've really gotten to the point where like the bowl season, you know, it, it's just kind of subverted by the playoffs so much, and now we're we're expanding it to the point where like okay, well, people can you know pay attention throughout, and I think that'll be good. So I'm excited for that. Um, all right, so we're going to do Ask Us Anything, but before we get into that, we want to remind you that the Dubcast is sponsored by the Dry Goods Store at 11warriors.com. Drygoods.11warriors.com, shirts, hats, stickers, all kinds of great stuff. Check it out. There's cool stuff. I think you should buy it. It would be good. Uh, let's do Ask Us Anything, and we remind you that you can ask us literally anything by sending us questions to dubcast at 11warriors.com. And I want to ask this question here from Kevin, who says, uh, "Guys, and by the way, just we're not we're not like easing ourselves into the uh, the deep end here. We're just going to jump right in." Um, Kevin wants to know: Now that basketball recruiting is pretty much wrapped up, is it time to fire Chris Holman? <laughs> so, George, should we now fire Chris Holman? 
I want to be careful about this. Okay. Uh, Chris Chris Holtman wrote my father a very nice email during the season. Oh wow, that's um, great. And I would expect that. I mean, Holtman, we kind of rag on the dude for being a little too terminally online, but honestly, I, everything that we know about him, he's a solid guy. I think he's a solid human. Well, I was I was going to say I don't think that's the only correspondence he had with a with a, a fan during the season uh, yeah. to to the point of why I think this uh, question of frustration is being asked to us. Uh, but my point is, no, I don't think he, he. Come on, let's 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 ride with Mister Holt. Yeah. And I think uh, you know he's he's got it. He knows what he's doing. Here's the thing, though, man. Like I, I have ragged on Holtman more or as much or more than anyone else. And I truly believe, like, if this is this is pretty much it. I mean, you've had a situation where you've got veterans that you're trying to coach up that hasn't worked really well. They looked a lot better towards the end of the season when basically everything had been blown up after that huge losing streak. Um, and now you've got a lot of dudes coming in who hopefully will be able to contribute. And you've got these great recruiting classes. You've got to, it, it's put up or shut up time. And again, as much as I like think Holtman is a, a good human being and a good person, um, you really do have to produce. And at Ohio state, I mean, there's, he's been there a long time. This isn't a situation where the guy is like in year two or year three and you're like, all right, well, you know, give him some time, figure out his recruiting classes, all that stuff. But with all of that said, this is not the time. If you were going to make that decision, you make that decision many months ago, not now in the mm-hmm. middle of summer. I think it's a terrible time to do it. Um, and again, I understand, like, if you're thinking about with, like, how Thad Mata left and whatnot, uh, you know, it was, it was I think, around this time. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think where the team is at, is, or is at right now, if you're going to make that decision, you make it basically at the end of the season, and then you you kind of rebuild. But now, I don't think is the right time to do it. And you know, we'll see how the next uh, we'll see how the next uh, basketball season plays out. So, you know, again, am I all in on Holman? No, um, I think he has a lot to prove, and I think he needs to do it this next season. But I also think that he's got a lot of good players. I don't think he's a bad coach overall. I don't think he's like a dummy or anything like that. Uh, I just think he needs to produce. And so we'll see what happens uh, this coming basketball season. Uh, This one, next one here is from Nate, who says, uh, as a fellow history buff, I enjoy reading books on history, mostly American history. What is your favorite history book of all time and anything that you would recommend? So I, you know, I was a social studies teacher for a long time. Um, have a degree in history, specifically American history. And I've read a lot of history books over the years, mostly like kind of American history stuff. Um, I don't know that I necessarily have like a favorite favorite that I just constantly revisit. Like I want to learn more stuff. And so I'm like kind of bouncing around right now. I'm reading a really great book about the beginning of the environmental uh, movement in the United States. Uh, It's called silent spring revolution. It came out last year. I can't remember the author off the top of my head, but yeah, silent spring revolution is excellent. One of my favorite history books of all time. This is actually, um, it's, it's one of, it leans a little bit closer into like pop history is uh, river of doubt. It's about Teddy Roosevelt's uh, expedition down a tributary of the Amazon. And that is just a wild story It's absolutely crazy. And uh, it was written by Candace Millard. She's a native of Ohio, actually. And she's written some really great books. But uh, River of Doubt is fantastic. That is an excellent, excellent book. I want to read, there's a new appraisal of the Watergate scandal that I want to read really badly. Um, so I think that might be next on my uh, 
on my list. There's another book uh, called Voice. If, if you if you watch the Chernobyl, uh, George, did you did you see the Chernobyl miniseries on HBO? I I tried watching it and I I couldn't get through all of it because I had I, I don't know it was just like subtitle overload for me. But I I enjoyed like the first and the beginning parts of it. It was very that that moment of history is very intriguing to me. So I did give it a shot, even though I didn't finish it. But I thought it was good. So what I saw the miniseries is based off of um, this kind of oral history called Voices from Chernobyl, and it's. I, I could go on a long rant about that. It's not exactly history or journalism. It's it's almost kind of like, I don't know. It, it's a weird, it kind of exists in this weird liminal space between like, like fiction and nonfiction. Uh, but the person who created it did do interviews with actual, you know, survivors of the event and people who lived in the area and it's harrowing and it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult to read, but it's an unbelievably good book. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, uh, I think that would definitely be a great thing to check out. History was uh, my favorite subject in school. And then I, I took AP history and I was encouraged to drop the class by my teacher, which I ultimately <laughs> did. So that, that that should tell you how dedicated of a student I am and went on to be at uh, The Ohio State University. But one, I, you know, I've been reading for a while, mm-hmm. but I haven't in my, well, since I was a kid, like in terms of very young age. And then I kind of fell out of love with it. Cause I read a lot of stuff for school that I didn't like. I've slowly been trying to get back into it. And one of the books that I've been thinking about reading is called killers of the flower moon. Oh, hell yeah. There we go. About the Osage murders and the birth of the FBI. That's right. Which is the, uh, upcoming Martin Scorsese movie that he's doing with DiCaprio is based off of that book. Mm-hmm. And it was written, I believe in 2019. I'm very interested in reading about that relative to what happened in Oklahoma. I believe you just uh, dropped the Tulsa reference. So bring yeah. that back. From there you go. But the book is, uh, the book is yeah, so Killers of the Flower Moon is the one I'd recommend. Yeah, the book is supposed to be excellent. Um, and I've heard some really like I know it was like shown at con or anything like that. I, I, I think that they um, they previewed the the movie and I think the movie's supposed to be really good, too. So, I mean, it's a Scorsese movie, so I'm mm-hmm. not super shocked by that. But, um, yeah, I, I, that's also on my list. I, I definitely want to check that one out. Um I think, hang on a second, there's one more. I, I don't want to spend too much time just giving recommendations, uh, but it's, let's see. Uh, I'm trying to, I got to look it up. You see what you've done, audience? You've riled up this former educator with your book <laughs> asks. Yeah, it's, it's uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, and that's about the Great uh, Migration. Um, and it's it's like another one of those like oral history kind of like accounts and, and talking about it. And that was written um, just a few years ago. I think that came out in like 2015, something like that. And I'm, I'm big into oral histories. I think those are really interesting. I was so that's by Isabel Wilkerson. And uh, yeah, that, actually, that came out in 2011. Um, I want to read that one as well. I'm a big oral history guy. I'm a huge fan of Studs Terkel who did some of the like most important uh, works of oral history in American history. Um, uh, working is like one of my favorite pieces of writing ever. It's, it's so great. Uh, so yeah, anyway, great question. Thank you, Nate. And if there's any specific time periods or eras or locations that you would uh, want recommendations for, I'm more than happy to give them. Lastly here, uh, this is from Alvin. It's getting hotter out in the summer. You know, it's, it's getting warm. And uh, this question from our good friend Alvin is, 
what was your fondest summer memory as a kid? You want to start? You know, so we, so my family, we're not, we weren't super like wealthy or anything like that. Um, pretty solidly, like, you know, as the Simpsons put it, upper, lower, middle class, you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, so we took trips every summer, but not like big fancy trips. So I would say one of my favorite memories, I think during the summer, we took a trip to Gettysburg. Actually, here's why we did it. Uh, I got suspended in middle school for getting into a fight. Actually, I got into a lot of fights in middle school, but um, Whoa. I, <laughs> yeah, that's actually why I ended up Johnny Buster Douglas yeah, over well, no, here. I got my butt kicked constantly. Um, but anyway, I had been suspended uh, during the school year, and kids who were suspended during the school year couldn't go on the class trip to Washington, D.C. <laughs> so while my classmates were having fun in D.C., uh, little Johnny was uh, taking, you know, remedial classes at uh, Vail Middle School. So, um, Anyway, as compensation, because I didn't really, it wasn't really my fault. I didn't start the fight. I kind of started the fight, but I didn't try to hit the kid. Anyway, uh, my parents, um, uh, my parents took us on a trip to Gettysburg in Washington, D.C. that summer. And I had a lot of fun. It was really, really cool. I'd never been to, well, I'd been to Gettysburg as a baby, but I I hadn't been as like, you know, I couldn't remember going there as a kid. Um, And so you know, it was a huge, huge into history, um, even back then. And so I really, really, really enjoyed that trip. That was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, being able to like mentally recreate everything at Gettysburg, because I was reading like the killer angels and I knew all the stuff. And I had this like CD-ROM video game that I played a thousand times where you simulate the battle of Gettysburg. And so that was really fun. I would say that was probably one of my fondest summer memories. That was cool. Um, I did a Mediterranean cruise. That was pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, How I, did, I think I think I was a so, I think I was going into sophomore year of high school. Okay. But actually, I I'm getting my cruises blended because they were both There's like so celebrations for like my grandparents or something. So I I did one before that that was actually in August. So technically a summer uh, a summer memory. And it was in Alaska, and I that just made me fall in love with that part of the world. Oh, that's that fantastic! Was, uh, that was a really nice memory. So I would, I would say that I got to be with my family, and I have very fond memories of my cousins and I uh, abusing the unlimited soda fountain. On the <laughs> so that was that was a great time go. too. So just every everything you could have wanted as a kid up in uh, the coldest part of the world during August. One of the so one of the perks uh, of being on a a cruise like that just getting you know low quality stuff but for free and an unlimited quality <laughs> that's a great way you know what i mean it's like going to Vegas. unlimited cheap crap yeah oh my god that's <laughs> i mean if the, the get you know if the ginter family has a motto it's if it's free it's Indulge. for me so i mean that's <laughs> i i respect that you know what? Another thing that I would add, this is like a more simple thing. I swam uh, on competitive swim teams since I was like six until I graduated high school. And I did summer swim teams. I did winter swim teams. But in the summer, one of my absolute favorite things to do would be after a long swim meet, because we, you know, we're in Middletown. The swim league that we were in was mostly Cincinnati. So we'd have to go to like Indian Hills or Wyoming or whatever. And uh, if we had a swim meet in Middletown, we'd go to the rallies after the meet. And sometimes these meets end at like eight or nine o'clock. And then if we were in uh, one of the away meets and in, in uh, excuse me, in uh, Cincinnati, 
we go to this designated graders that we'd always go to. So getting out of those swim meets, going to rallies or going to graders and just hanging out with swim team. I mean, that was, I love that. Like swimming all day, getting some ice cream afterwards or a burger. That was, that was pretty much the height of summer for me. I enjoyed that quite a bit. No, I used to, I used to do that with, you know, football too, after, you know, road games and we'd be coming back from, you know, Friday and Saturday nights in uh, high school, but that was more like, you know, fall, but still, still the same vein, even though it wasn't quite the same calendar. The, I will say the other nice summer thing that I had was that I worked at, uh, you know, for the, uh, the Chicago listeners, all, you know, three of them on the Dubcast audience. Uh, if, if you're familiar with Ravinia Festival, it's the uh, oldest outdoor concert venue in the United States going back over 100 years, I believe, at wow. this point. That's cool. Um, I worked there every summer when I was in high school, pretty much. I think after I was an upperclassman. And I've <clears throat> some of the performances that I got to see because of that um, – are like i'll be able to carry with me the rest of my i saw aretha franklin the year before she died that's wild like i i've some of the i saw tony bennett at 84 years old like some of the some of the things that i can just say that i was in the pavilion for i saw common do a show for an entire suburban audience (laughs) and he absolutely packed it and crushed it it was phenomenal. So I've I've seen many a wonderful show at there, and I got to see them for free. And, uh, yeah, it's just uh, one of the ways the music has been a wonderful part of my life. That's great. That's uh, awesome. That was very great. That's really cool. So summer, summer, a wonderful time on the Dubcast for all. There you go. So that's Ask Us Anything. Thank you for sending those questions in. That was fantastic. Please continue. It is the summer. It is the off season. We'll answer whatever you decide to ask us. Um, let's go ahead and do some uh, just quick hitters here. So, you know, Ohio State, uh, obviously the defense is going to be a huge, huge uh, topic of conversation um, going into it. Chase Brown, Garrett Hodge, Dan Hope, Griffin, all these guys kind of uh, gathered together and they got a bunch of comments, a bunch of uh, interview questions from the defensive coaches. We've got Jim Knowles out here saying that C.J. Hicks is going to unleash as a sophomore. <laughs> I don't know why he sounds like, you know, he's in the WWE, but, um, you know, this that is a, guy... a Skip Bayless original. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Unleashed Tim Tebow. <laughs> um, so, you know, CJ Hicks wasn't really on the field last year. Uh, Knowles is saying, you know, he wants them to be like, he's on the cusp of breaking out. He's going to be all over the place. Let me ask you this, based on on those two articles and, and kind of what we've seen, who is the guy that you're really looking at on the defense, and including maybe C.J. Hicks? But but who is the guy that you really think is going to be the breakout dude this year? I was hoping the biggest freshman contributor when we like were asked who we thought biggest like freshman contributor was going to be last year. I thought it was going to be C.J. Hicks because of the linebacker core was the biggest glaring need. Knowles was going to have presumably the the least difficulty fixing the the secondary just because of the pieces that were coming back combined with the ones that were coming in. Right. Larry Johnson's had the front line taken care of as long as he's been here. So I figured Knowles was going to need to dedicate the most amount of time to fixing the linebacker core, and he'd want to work with the pieces that would give him the most success to doing that. 
Tommy Eichenberg ended up having a total renaissance year, so that ended up not being as necessary. But just that gap that was questionable at the time entering this season a year ago combined with the turnover of new personnel managing the roster made me think that Hicks was going to be in a very good position to be a very big contributor right away, possibly Sonny Styles as well. Mm-hmm. Now that we're a year in, we're definitely going to see those guys used in ways that I was anticipating we might see a year ago. They just weren't, I guess, ready along that timeline, which you like seeing with guys that are experienced veterans of coaching guys up like Jim Knowles. It reminds me of what uh, Tom Thibodeau did with Jimmy Butler, who is currently playing in the NBA Finals, where Jimmy Butler played, I don't think, more than three games in his rookie year, if at all, and eventually went on to become an all-star caliber player because they held him uh, out in that early stage instead of just throwing him to the Wolves to, you know, in the idea of getting him better. They let him get along an appropriate development timeline. And we've seen Knowles do that for Hicks and for Styles. So I would expect both of those guys to be the biggest impact contributors heading into this season. But certainly we want to see the most out of the linebacking core in terms of improvement. So I would say Hicks absolutely is the guy that I'm looking at in terms of who's going to be the focal point of improvement in this defense this year relative to what we see new from Knowles. And Hicks is going to be a really interesting guy because he can he's he's so versatile and, and I feel like there's so many different ways that he can help out the defense. So I, that's you know, you've got you've got guys coming back who are really solid and I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I still love, I love that uh, Knowles. I'm just going to read this. We want to play a long season and you saw what happened, happened to Tommy, no thumbs <laughs> as you get down to the end, you need more depth. So to see uh, the more that CJ can play, the more that helps us over the long haul. I can Bert, I mean, when you're talking about guys that come back and, and you're talking about impact players, I think about dudes who have this kind of latent potential that we've seen, but we want it to be consistent. And so like JT Tuimolo, like, again, he has this God mode against Penn state where he looks like the greatest, you know, athlete, the greatest player <laughs> defensively for Ohio state's history uh, for the course of an entire game. And then didn't, you know, he didn't have a terrible season, but didn't replicate that performance. And you want to see that as often as possible guy like Denzel Burke, who kind of fell off a little bit. He's been lauded as kind of the leader of the defense in a lot of ways during the spring. You want to see him come back and have a great season. So for me, like the younger guys, I mean, Hicks, Styles, that that's great. I want to see those dudes perform. I want to see them play. I'm more interested in what's going to happen with some of the veteran dudes who we know are really, really great, but how consistent can they be? Right. And really, that's a question for the entire defense. I mean, Knowles is saying, you know, like, you know, some of those defensive lapses, breakdowns, you know, have haunted him. And that's that's the word that he used. They've literally haunted. He said they've haunted me, just haunted me. But that doesn't do anybody any good. And I I agree with that. It doesn't. uh, But they do have to be fixed, as he says, like that's that to me. If you want to fix those lapses, if you want to fix those few things that led to losses against Michigan and Georgia, and prevented you from possibly winning a national championship. Um, I think that's going to require veteran leadership. That's going to require guys who who know, who ostensibly have been in the program for a long time, who know the scheme, 
uh, to lead it for the younger guys and to, to make sure that that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Which, which they have, and they spent, you know, last year, I think taking their looking like, you know, they're, they, they took their lumps last year in terms of learning what's a very difficult scheme. And I think Knowles gave them the opportunity to make mistakes and grow. And that, that the thing that bothered me the most about what he was preaching in terms of his mentality last year was the idea that I can give up five terrible plays to the other team a game. Mm -hmm. And I will accept that risk in the interest of, you know, being able to throw multiple <clears throat> different blitz packages and whatnot right. at them from a variety of different formations. And that's great. But then Michigan exposed how if you're going to give us five opportunities to put it in the end zone we're gonna, and we do it every time, right. you're going to have trouble maintaining pace if we put the clamps on. Right. So I think when he talks about that haunting him, he's recognizing that that sort of letting them make mistakes in the interest of being hyper aggressive whenever we want to. Um, I think that what he has said here is him shifting away from that mentality. And that is going to be extremely crucial, particularly for situations where you can just freeze an offense on third and, somewhat long as opposed to sending the house and then giving up a first down and then suddenly you're you know playing from downhill again right so i i feel good about where he's at with saying this relative to where the the team is going and i'm confident that because he's got that mentality the guys that have been operating under him for a long time are going to follow suit so i'm confident the old guard is going to stay in tow with Knowles. I'm more curious about how does the new blood fill in and because uh, they're going to have to be running the show themselves eventually. And this is in a similar way you were talking about with another coach earlier. It's put up or shut up time at a certain point with players on their development curve. It's put up or shut up yeah. time. So we we haven't gotten to see the big names yet. And it's it's time. I'm, I'm excited to see what they can do for this. Defense. No, that's an excellent point. And, and like you said, it will be interesting to see how it all kind of shakes out. Uh Next thing we want to talk about real quick. So Nick Saban gave an interview where he was talking about NIL, uh, potentially making players employees, which apparently he doesn't have too much of a problem with, which, I mean, you can make a cynical joke about how, well, they've already been employees for how many decades at Alabama. So how is this any different? Um, his big thing, though, he says that if you think there's disparity in college football now, there's going to be a lot more in the future. I don't know how it could get worse. I don't – I mean <laughs> – First of all, and people are like, oh, well, Nick Saban's just saying that. He's a he visionary. Wants, yeah, I, he's just saying because he wants to protect his position or something like that. Nick Saban's won a billion national championships. He doesn't care. He, he is beyond caring. He's not trying to protect anything. He'll do whatever he has to do to win, but I don't think he's he's trying to, like, say stuff so that, you know, his, his uh, you know, team remains its cohesiveness or that, you know, he can get an advantage or great. I don't care about any of that stuff at this point. Um, but as far as disparity goes, I mean, I don't – NIL is obviously going to exacerbate certain things, but I don't see how either making players employees or NIL is going to fundamentally change where we're already at. Like, unless you decrease the amount of scholarships or something like that. I mean, it's, you look at a program like Ohio state or Georgia 
or Alabama or, or, you know, even Oregon, the kind of facilities that they have, and then compare them to the bottom of the same conferences that they play in, it's night and day, man. Like, it's not (laughs) – it's it's really about the amount of money that's being funneled into the programs, not about how much they're paying players, I think. I don't know. You're, you're, you love talking about that, uh, that practice facility they have in Northwestern relative to what they got going on at, uh, the Woody. That's right. The Woody Which is sick. Center, so. so Northwestern, like I said, Northwestern is going to be the top team in the conference and it's, <laughs> but do you see what I'm saying though? Like, it's not, I, I don't think that NIL, yeah. I don't think the paying players, I don't think it's going to change the fundamentals of where we're already at. And I don't see how it could make it all that much worse frankly it makes me feel good be about where the position is for ohio state because i i have sympathy for the other teams but if what the guy that has been running the sport from a coaching perspective turns out to be accurate in his assessment that only means that ohio state's going to stay at the top so is that really (laughs) a bad thing from where i'm looking no i'm i'm you know it's lonely at the top, man. It's hard, but you know, heavy is the we're head happy to occupy the, the space. We're heavy is the head that wears the crown right. in the Big Ten. I know Michigan's been saying that the last couple of years, but uh, win a college football playoff game and then uh, we'll, well, we'll talk. Win more than half a championship in the last like seven to eight decades. <laughs> so. The other thing that I was kind of thinking about with the NIL stuff, and you know, we, we talk about like collectives and all this other stuff, and obviously 11 Warriors is kind of involved in that. Um, do you think, I mean, I think there's this mentality that players don't know what they're getting themselves into. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, they don't, these kids wait till they have to pay taxes, right? Or, or wait till they, you know, wait, well, till they have to manage a bunch of this stuff and they don't understand what's going on. I honestly think a lot of these guys are pretty savvy and understand how this stuff works. And I don't think sometimes when I see this conversation and how we talk about it, I honestly feel like we're not giving players enough credit. Like these, you know, sometimes 22, 23 year old men, they're not dumb. Like they're not dummies. They're not stupid. They understand like where the money's coming from and how to manage and all that stuff. They can fill out a tax form. Um, It just surprises me that some people are so who, who in almost every other instance of potential injury to players, they, they could not care less. But when it comes to this specific thing, they're like, Oh, the players. Oh my gosh. Are they going to be okay? And I, like, again, I don't think we're giving them enough credit in this conversation. I, I think that it, what the, the, the tricky dynamic of this is you have players that are exiting their adolescence and entering their adulthood at a very um, tense time in their decision-making process, and now they're getting a windfall of um, you know capital with which they can do a lot of different things. Um, I think it's more of an issue for recruits coming in than it is for, you know, players that are in the late stage. Mm-hmm. I think that there's going to be more infrastructure that is event as, you know, we get, as we slowly start to get out of the wild West moment of NIL, I think that there's going to be more infrastructure in place that gives players the opportunity to market themselves regardless of what school that they end up there's going to be it's going to be easier there will be more vehicles in place for brand building uh not only from on like a national scale but like just from what's available at the university and from the athletic department the bigger thing that i think is harder to control is when they're the kids are coming out of adolescence and they're coming in as freshmen 
and while you're still managing them in that recruiting stage and they're getting ready to jump into NIL, I think that they're a little bit more receptive to getting mixed up in something that could potentially be exploitive. We saw that happen with, I believe, one of the Florida quarterback oh, recruits yeah. that got into some bizarre eight-figure NIL right, right. deal. He was told he was going to make like $12 trillion. So there's some naivety in play here, but I think what you're saying is mostly accurate in terms of how this affects the disparity in college football. Yeah, and that's fair. And, and I do think that you're right. For the younger guys, that can be something that, you know, the Nick Saban's of the world are probably right in saying that that's, that's something to be cautious of. I just, I think sometimes what people are doing is they're using that argument and maybe that fact to say like, well, then we can't really trust these guys with this money. And I'm like, that's, have you seen what some of these college football coaches do? Like, I don't know that we can trust them with some of this money. <laughs> like, I, like they're, they're public records. That guy in Texas had like a stripper girlfriend with a monkey or something say, that I bit mean, a kid during a Halloween exhibit a year ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, like, you know, guys like Hugh Freeze, you know, you're calling people on, on campus. I, you know, it's just like, I don't know, man. Sometimes maybe it's just people in general that can be kind of silly with money and it's not necessarily a player thing. Um, all right. So last thing I want to get into, this is kind of just a ridiculous thing. I don't, so Ohio State, and here's the thing, Ohio State has had a reason to be on high alert in the past. Uh, they sent out Ohio State safety sent out a, an alert about an active attacker on Ohio State's campus. Said they should run, right, run, hide, or fight. And then seven minutes later, like, oh, I'm sorry, that was a test. So typically, you want to flip those two things uh, if you're going to oh, give out a they test. Didn't say it was a test. They said the vendor accidentally pressed the button. That's, the same that's what they said. And we were talking about this. Okay, I forgot about that. That's the that's exactly what we were talking about before we started recording with the Hawaii thing where they said that there was a missile approaching and that everybody in Honolulu needed to like escape. And it was because literally like somebody just went Boop, and then hit the wrong button and told millions of people that they were all going to die, you know, in nuclear hellfire. So point is everybody's kind of, I think kind of on edge for a lot of reasons lately. Maybe don't add to that. That's all I'm saying. Jim, Jim Harbaugh likes to talk in war metaphors a lot. <laughs> yes, he does. If yeah. that emergency alert system ever says that there's there's missiles coming over from Ann Arbor now, are people really going to believe the, it if it goes off? We we need we need to build the credibility of this system back up again for when Harbaugh tries to take back to when he gets that's all that I'm that's saying. right when he gets the codes we got to be prepared. That's right. he's he's. This is a this is a He's gonna pull a crazy <laughs> Ivan. Just freak us out. He's the Shemmy Shembeckler has the other new key. It's the Cuban Mr. Crack. Yeah, they're sitting in a, a it's sub. It's a two turd system up there That's in right. Ann Arbor. They're sitting in a sub. They're in the then they're <laughs> they're two hundred feet below the surface of Lake Erie and they're both just like fighting over who gets to put it in. Yeah, exactly. Oh my god. <laughs> so <laughs> Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, that's pretty good. This is what happens when you have a coach that still thinks World War II is going on. And chicken He's a dangerous murder. man. Mm-hmm. I hope Ryan Day understands that. Yeah, Ryan. I feel like Ryan Day probably lives a little bit more in the real world. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, so, excellent questions this week. Great topics. We're going to keep talking about them next week. Keep getting into it. Uh, it is the off season, so it's going <laughs> to more more Cuban Missile Crisis references. That's not all I'll say. That's just what we're going to do. So, 
Uh, we'll see you next week. But until then, I'm Johnny. Have a great weekend. Week. Have a great week. <laughs>